If Reality Check Radio enriches your day and life, support us to keep bringing you the content, voices, perspectives, and dose of reality you won't get anywhere else. Visit www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. It's time for another RCR Health Hacks program. We do it every Monday morning, and uh, we have a variety of contributors now. Uh, Obviously, Dr. Glenn Davies is one of them. And Dr. Anna Goodwin, retired oncologist, is uh, back on RCR for a Health Hacks. Dr. Goodwin, welcome back. Thank you for having me on, Paul. It's always a pleasure. Okay, so in your wheelhouse, albeit retired now, uh, and that is uh, of um, in oncology, cancer, and with summer coming up, we thought it would be a good time to talk about skin cancer. And um, I guess trying to find a balance between summer sun and the health benefits that that brings, we can talk about that, and the risk of skin cancer. How should we start talking about this, Anna, do you think? Well, I would just say that as an oncologist, um, I never got a chance really to see people when they were curable of their skin cancer. An oncologist is always sort of the end of the road person. So now that I'm retired, I get to talk about how to keep people from having to see the likes of me, because once a skin cancer is established or metastatic, it's a much harder thing to deal with. And we have over 90,000 non-melanoma skin cancers in New Zealand. And out of that, only about 175 people die of non-melanoma skin cancers per year. And melanoma is much less common, but it's much more deadly because it quietly spreads throughout the body. And so early detection is really vital. And melanoma usually starts as a mole, sort of an atypical mole with irregular borders. It's asymmetric. It might look different on one side or the other. And it oftentimes is changing or evolving rather quickly. And those are all really important warning signs for people to get into a dermatologist or at least their GP. Most moles really do need a biopsy. Um, you know, one of the things that people worry about oftentimes is, is a, 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 a little brown patch called a seborrheic keratosis, and it will have a waxy appearance, but it's almost always it's always benign. Um, those are the things that frighten people, but oftentimes um, a mole that's changing really does need to be assessed and biopsied properly. And if you're a person who has a significant number of moles and you're not sure if they're changing or not, it's really important to avail yourself to mole mapping, which is offered you know, throughout New Zealand. Um, the Melanoma Foundation has a lot of information on their website. And your GP can often coordinate with a qualified dermatologist to actually assess whether a mole has changed and whether a biopsy is indicated. But oftentimes, pre-malignant non-melanoma lesions can simply be burnt off, scraped off, or dissolved with effudex or various other compounds 
And they often present as just sort of scaly things on your skin, usually your arms and the highly sun exposed areas, arms, legs, forehead. And, and what I would typically see as an oncologist working in various cancer centers that do radiation, um, we would see a lot of people that had non-melanoma skin cancers involving their scalp, their ears, their nose. The nose is particularly um, prone to basal cell carcinomas. The lower lip is pr a particularly dangerous place to get a skin cancer. So if you have a non-healing um, nodule on your lower lip that's been highly sun exposed, that's a very important thing to bring to the attention of, of, of medical people and, um, and have it dealt with before it gets out of hand. And that's obviously distinct from a, a herpes simplex ulcer or something like that. But a, a non-healing ulcer on your lower lip can be a, a real um, point of concern. And it's oftentimes very hard to remove these without disfiguring a person's face. And so these are the areas that it's really important to protect. Um, it's very important if you're out in the sun to wear a broad brimmed hat to protect, especially the tops of your ears. Um, the tops of the ears are oftentimes burnt, especially in men who are out in the sun working. It's important to wear a, a hat that protects ears, wear sunscreen that's SPF 15 to 30 on your ears, your nose, and your scalp, if you're, it's it, like I said, a hat solves a whole lot of things, but a lot of people don't like to wear them. But a hat really does take care of a lot of things. Your um, obviously sun exposure is a very important risk factor for cataracts. So I strongly recommend that people wear their sunnies um, at the beach and protect your eyes um, from the glare. The the water, cement, and sand oftentimes magnify the the UV damage coming up from below. So even though you're wearing the hat, you can still get um, reflection from water and sand and cement when you're out in the summer sun. So I think um, it's important at least to wear a, a broad bermed hat and your sunnies. And preferably if you are going to be in the water um, or at the beach, if you're a fair skinned person, it's important to wear at least SPF 30. That wipes out roughly 87 to 97% of the sun of, of the UV light. And um, if you're a darker skinned person, you actually can stay in the sun a whole lot longer. Um, in fact, you know, the melanin content of our skin is actually the, the number one factor that protects from both non-melanoma and melanoma skin cancers. And so if we look around the world, it's, it's the people that from equatorial um, nations that are well designed to be in the sun um we this is an adaptive response for the humanity if you're if you were meant to be in the sun you have a lot of melanin and so it's um you can tolerate the sun much more readily than a fair-skinned freckled person um who should probably severely limit their sun exposure due to the the mm. risk of damage yeah, I'm not a very good um, uh, player here because I don't like to wear hats. I don't wear sunglasses. <laughs> and I don't <laughs> like wearing or putting on sun lotion or whatever you call it now. But I don't think in saying that, and I don't mean to sound like arrogant or anything, I don't think I've ever 
really had a problem, though I won't stay out in the sun for longer than a good run, which is about 45 minutes an hour at the most, which would be most the most exposure. So am I being a bit naughty? Oh, not at all, Paul. Um, you, you've got um, somewhat olive, an olive complexion. And so, and, and I would also say that it's, it's really the conditioning of your skin, because if you're out in the sun for a little while every day, that's actually a very healthy thing. Um, and if you're, if you're not getting burned and you know, your, your skin's tolerance, and I'm assuming you're not, you're, you're, you're wearing clothes while you're running. Oh yeah. Um, so, yeah. so you yeah. would, you would, you would actually, you know, you would have your legs exposed, perhaps your, your, the top of your head, you do have hair, but if someone has less hair than you, you know, they're, ears, the top of their ears and their nose are, are going to be, you know, probably yep. a little more prone to damage. And, you know, you've got a, a great olive complexion. And so someone like you, you would be very, um, very well adapted to being out in the sun for, you know, 30, 40 minutes. And that's probably why you've, you've done so well. Now it's the one of the critical things about melanoma is that it's the number of blistering sunburns that we have before the age of 18. Right. And, and that's a really key thing because most of us, before we reach the age of 18, we're, we're quite stupid and we don't want to be told what to do. And we want to be out in the sun with our friends. And, and I was personally sunbathing on my aunt's um, tin roofed barn wearing um, baby oil, trying to get a tan. <laughs> so I would look, right. look great to go to the swimming pool with my friends and I would get so blistered. And, but these are really critical things and I can't undo that. But one of the things we can do to help ourselves is, is also good nutrition and, and sort of as we become older and wiser, perhaps reducing the amount of, of, of blistering sunburns that we have and cumulative sun exposure. And um, so, so it's, 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 it is something that we can mitigate by, you know, healthy diet. Um, and, and in, in particular, there's a lot of good evidence now, Paul, about vitamin B3 or um, niacin. And in particular, the active component of that is niacinamide. And I'm always one that's prone to, you know, I, I love finding cheap preventative measures that don't involve drug therapy that people can actually do for themselves, because it's very clear that we're not going to get this sort of advice unless we go find it for ourselves. And so I've had some amazing results in some of my patients who have severely sun damaged skin and the, the niacinamide um, actually helps maintain the hydration of the skin. And it also, you know, when we get sun damage, the ATP and the ability of the skin cells to actually repair the sun damage, that's actually damaged. So when we have enough niacinamide taken systemically, we are able to repair that damage and reduce the aging and the damage to, the, to our DNA that results in squamous carcinomas and basal cell carcinomas. And, and yeah, there's less evidence that it prevents melanoma, 
but um, it's still worth, you know, worth protecting your skin. And, and you know, there's so many most most women in particular are worried about getting wrinkled before their time. And there's actually good evidence that the niacinamide can improve the sun damage induced wrinkles, which right. I yeah. find particularly interesting as as a middle aged woman. So um, I, I strongly recommend vitamin B3, and you can get this in any number of B-complex formulations. I don't like to recommend brands, but niacinamide in particular is the most active component for what you would want to achieve. And it's important for children to take this, especially for children with Celtic-type skin. And they particularly need protection because, you know, like I said, it's the damaging blistering sunburns that we get before the age of 18 that are particularly relevant for how we age in terms of melanoma risk. And um, so we have to look after our kids in particular. Yeah, I'm just trying to visualize what happens, you know, and you're talking about that age band, you know, young to 18, where the damage is done, yet we don't see the effect of that, what, for sometimes decades later. So that actually, that sun exposure, that intensity damages DNA, does it? Is that what happens? Correct. And the damage can sit there in the stem cell compartment of the melanocyte, which are the pigment cells of the of, of the skin. And that damage, it, it often, you know, our, our bodies are quite forgiving and quite adaptable. It, it's usually multiple hits. So you get the damage early on, and then you just don't have as much in your bank account to compensate later on. So if you get your hits early on in life, you you just don't have quite as much in your bank account to spread over a lifetime. So those kids can be quite impacted um, by early blistering sunburns, not to create fear in parents, just to, just a mindfulness is, is what we need. We don't want kids to grow up petrified of the sun because in actual fact, the sun is our primary way in which we get vitamin D. We, we make vitamin D on exposure to the sun. And if we don't have vitamin D, our risk of colorectal cancer and other visceral malignancies goes up. So it's very, very important to strike that balance. And vitamin D, when it's in the body all the time, it actually seems to protect from the melanoma as well. So it protects from melanoma, from lymphoma, from colorectal cancer, but it's it's the people that are the weekend warriors that are most at risk that go out that they're not they're not doing like you do Paul having a 30 to 40 minute sun exposure per day and you know we we know that fair skinned people they're likely to make about you know 10,000 units of vitamin D on about 20 to 30 minutes of sun exposure. Whereas a darkly pigmented person will take about two hours to make about the same amount of vitamin D. Um, so they actually need time in the sun. They're designed for more time in the sun. And we do more darkly pigmented people a, a disservice by telling them to slap on sunscreen because they actually are not getting the vitamin D that they need to protect them from colorectal cancer, for instance, and other 
um, serious visceral malignancies. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned vitamin D because one thing I think we've learned, and correct me if we're wrong, that many people have um, turned up deficient in vitamin D. And uh, that's been obvious through COVID and all of that, and we know a lot more about it than we used to. Well, well, I certainly do. Um, And I'm wondering if this, well, obsession is probably a bit of a strong word, but, you know, this slip, slop, slap message, which has been going at at full noise for decades now, is actually preventing a lot of people from getting any true uh, UV exposure and the benefit of vitamin D that comes from that because they have been scared off the sun. That's, I think that's a really important point, Paul. And, um, and I think this is why I wanted to talk about this, because there's that critical balance point. Different skin types need more sun in order to get an appropriate level of vitamin D to protect them from all manner of of problems. Vitamin D is directly relevant for cardiovascular health, for mental health, for cancer protection, and and it it is directly related to a, a lot of mental illness. I didn't realize it, but in my own life, I suffered from seasonal affective disorder. I used to get really depressed over Christmas. I thought it was because I was an oncologist having to give people bad news <laughs> over Christmas. Yeah. And then when I started spending summers in New Zealand, I didn't find oh. Christmas so depressing. Yeah. And I realized, you know, well, I, I twigged on it and I realized that my vitamin D level was actually low. And once I started correcting my vitamin D level in the wintertime, I no longer had seasonal depression. And when we look at all the depressive illness, the suicides, you know, it's because we, our youth have gone indoors. They no longer are outside, you know, connecting with the earth, doing things with their friends and actually being outside. They've gone inside to a little box and I would say that many of our youth are, are very vitamin D deficient. And you, I think one of the best things we could do in New Zealand is to, for people who are depressed or suffering with fibromyalgia or, you know, just unable to cope. And I think one of the first tests that should be done would be a vitamin D level. And the average level in New Zealand is 30 whereas it should be above 50 for optimal health. And we, we tend to think of vitamin D as simply being for bone health, but it's, um, it's, it's vital for our immune function. And the reason people get sick in the winter is because the vitamin D levels go down, and that means the receptor actually expands so that whatever little sunlight we, we are exposed to is translocated into our cells. And Ironically, most of our winter viruses, including influenza, bind to the vitamin D receptor. And when the vitamin D levels are sufficient, the receptor closes down and there's no place for the viruses to land. So once I started making certain that my vitamin D levels were above 70, I never got the flu again. That's um, that that's quite stunning, really, when you put it that way, because well, it is, it, it really is. It's, it's so it's easily so, it's solved. It's an easy fix. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a very easy fix. And we know that when, for, for in COVID, for instance, there's good evidence that the risk of, of serious life-threatening illness from COVID dropped 14-fold in people that had vitamin D levels over 70. 
One thing I've noticed because I had kids at school when this became a big thing is that um, schools became very sun averse, right? And because yeah. um, I remember being at school and there's no thinking of that at all. And that was probably too far the other way. But it's an obsession. You go outside, you got to wear hats. Um, there's a constant sort of a reinforcing of the sun is is dangerous. And um, obviously, um, it's a great market for people who sell um, sun lotion, whatever you call it, sunscreen. Um, do you think we might have gone just a bit over the top? I, I kind of do. I, I mean, it, it's very hard to to say that, which is why I think there's got to be a balance point. I think it has to come down to proportional risk. And that comes right down to the amount of melanin in an individual's skin. Well, well as and, an example, and I mean, if you're going to spend 45 minutes in the playground, okay, at the height of summer, running around sweaty, I mean, that's not going to produce a blistering sunburn, really, is it? No, not 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 for most children. Um, if if you if your child is a fair skinned, freckled, redheaded child, hmm. their risk might be a little bit more. And most people know if they're prone to sunburning or whether they freckle or tan. Um, but I, but I think we probably have created a bit of a disproportionate risk. You know, it is true that. New Zealand and Australia have the highest skin cancer incidence in the world. Um, that amounts to about 36 um, per 100,000 in, in Australia and 31 per 100,000 in New Zealand. And then the other top 10 countries are all Northern European. Hmm. We don't see the African or equatorial countries coming in there any um, you know, virtually anywhere with, with skin cancer risk. Um, and I think it's because we, we do have a quite a number of Northern European um, individuals in our population. And we tend to pretend that everyone's risk is the same, regardless of melanin content. And I think that probably is, 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 is not very scientific. Like you said, the, the, the slap it on and stay out of the sun and, you know, wrap yourself up in cotton wool doesn't actually serve everyone. Well, everyone is a bit different. Um, people are very much the same on the inside, but our skin is, is quite a unique feature for each individual. And I think it has to be, I think everyone needs to assess their own personal risk and, you know, not scare their children out of, out of the sun, children need to be outside. Um, I think it's vital for mental health. I, I think that it would probably be a very important thing to research with our, our teenage mental health problems. Um, I, I think we do need to reacquaint ourselves with the great outdoors. We have one of the most beautiful, enviable countries on the planet, and, and we're afraid to, to enjoy it in many cases. And I think you can protect yourself and find ways to mitigate the risk if you are an individual that's at risk for sun damage. And I certainly don't want to downplay the misery that I've seen um, with regard to melanoma and advanced skin cancers. But the vast majority of them are are curable if, if detected early. Um, and, and that's really the main crux of the matter. And maintaining 
healthy levels of vitamin D, vitamin B3, and also um, vitamin B10, para-aminobenzoic acid, is another important vitamin that used to be placed in sunscreen that we put on our skin, but it was um, it caused some irritation. But you know, having a little bit in your in your in your vitamins um, with with that you would would take, um, like, like a, a general B complex vitamin, just look for a, a brand that has PABA. And there are really good and safe sunscreens that can be used. Um, zinc is probably the safest sunscreen, um, zinc oxide, but they now make a clear zinc and there's a titanium um, product that is actually also a really good sunscreen. I tend to prefer those over the some of the, the more noxious sunscreen products that some of them have been linked to cancer. Some of the... Um, Immune suppressive drugs may increase someone's susceptibility to, to skin cancers. Um, some chemotherapy drugs, um, if you're immune suppressed from HIV or a type of leukemia, those are all risk factors in addition to um, sun exposure. So you might need to go a little more gently with the sun. Um, and if you've had a family history of melanoma or a personal history of melanoma, those are all important things to consider as well when you when you go out into the summer sun. So I, I think it's important for people to know what their risk is. It is a, an individual risk and perhaps a family risk that, you know, the parents would need to consider with regard to their children. But I do think that we need to sort of recalibrate um, our our advice to make it a more personal um, recommendation because I, I don't think our our broad recommendations to just avoid it like the plague are serving us very well. Okay, so you mentioned that uh, was it thirty one in a hundred thousand? That's what deaths from skin cancer is it in in our population? That, that, that's, that's or how many people get it? That's how many people get it, and. So it's, it's not actual deaths. We have about 500 people per year in New Zealand that, that die of skin cancer. Okay. And about 175 of those are from advanced non-melanoma skin cancers. And most of those are going to be on the head and neck because those are areas that are hard to resect. And they oftentimes go very deep before they're, they're removed. And, and those have a tendency to spread to lymphatics and those can actually behave rather badly. So that's why I really focus on protecting head and neck. Men have a slightly mm. higher risk of dying of melanoma cancer because men tend to go around without a shirt and they get melanomas on their back. Right. And you so can't see that. Right? You, 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 uh, men see. don't notice that they're there. So, so if you have a mole on your back, that's, that's beginning to bleed or to ulcerate, you know that's not not something to 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 delay. Um, how how long do you have in that situation, Anna? Before it's like too late. Well, we know that melanomas that ulcerate are 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 very bad, um, and and so I, I I would advise anyone that has a a changing mole that's you know that's asymmetric on their back or anywhere that is is just not 
looking right or if it's bleeding or whatever that's those are actually very late signs it's it's pretty impressive how quickly melanoma can spread into the systemic circulation or through lymphatic vessels so melanoma even a small one can be quite deadly um it is true that the earlier it's found when it's you know only a millimeter or less than two millimeters and it's just superficial those are the best prognostic melanomas and those can get a wide local excision um and and oftentimes they're cured over over 90 percent of the time but if we wait until they're nodular and ulcerating and spread to lymph nodes those are very very high risk so the the sooner the better if you have a changing mole please get to see your gp and and get mole mapping get a dermatology referral or a plastic surgeon referral whatever it takes to get a proper excision and generally speaking moles should not be burned off we need histology on those so that we manage them properly when you say that you need to know the sort of the the, the history of them is that is that what that means well we need to know the cell type and the depth oh. of invasion those are the ways that we prognosticate in terms of deciding about whether further treatment is needed whether mm -hmm. we need to do a, a, a sentinel node biopsy all of those things factor into you know how we manage a melanoma so even an early melanoma can be quite deadly so we treat them with a great deal of respect um, you know, we, we have a whole lot of new drugs that have come into the um, oncology repertoire um, to treat melanoma, but they, they do improve survival. We, we sometimes hesitate to use the word cure. In fact, we usually hesitate to use the word cure. We focus on overall survival, and that has been impacted, but, you know, it's just Every time I see someone with advanced melanoma, I'm reminded of how important early detection is and and getting early intervention while something is small and superficial. Um, it makes all the difference in terms of survival. And is that surgically removed at that point or um, do you zap it or, or, or how is it dealt with? Well, with, with melanomas, we don't ever want them zapped. Like I said, we need right. we need a full thickness piece of it to look at the depth of invasion and whether it has formed a nodular growth phase and whether it has ulceration. And we also look at the number of cell divisions that are in a certain um, high-powered field. That tells us how mitotically active or how, how rapidly proliferating the cancer is. And those are all very important predictive things that might give us a sense of whether we need to follow that person more closely. Um, you know, there are different subtypes of melanoma, some of them with greater risk, some of them lesser risk. And so, you know, we, we tend to keep a closer eye on people that, um, that have, you know, the, the more aggressive types of melanoma and, and they need to be under closer surveillance. All right. Well, there's some very useful information there, and it's uh, brilliantly time for the time of year that we're in and coming into the peak of the uh, intensity of the summer sun. Anything more to say, Anna, about um, skin cancer before we oh, finish I, I our health I, hacks? I would say one more little health hack 
um, for mm. anyone with melanoma that is advanced. One of the most important things we've found in using the drug Keytruda, which is used for advanced melanoma and quite a number of other cancers, is that it, it um, seems to require a very highly functional gut microbiome. Oh, okay. And that, yep. in particular, um, Acromantia musophila species are, are required for the utility of the Keytruda to be optimal or the Optivo or, you know, all of these checkpoint inhibitors seem to really require your gut microbiome to be optimal. And the Acromantia species are particularly relevant for that. And there are some products available at, that patients can avail themselves to. I'm not plugging any products. I'm just saying from a, a scientific and biological standpoint, these are things that can actually benefit people because you certainly don't want to be paying $7,500 a shot for a drug that's not going to work for you. So go find some really good probiotics to take so that your shot works for you. Um, I think that's a really important point that you might not hear elsewhere. So Keytruda is yet to be funded by Pharmac. Is that what I take from you mentioning? The no, cost? it's, 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 it's funded it? um, for certain, certain disease states right? Um, okay. yep. for certain tumor streams, but you know, it's it's finding its way into other tumor streams because we it's 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 sort of a, a shortcut to helping the body's immune system react to the tumor cells. And so anyone on Keytruda, there's reason to believe that that they would likely benefit from having a healthy functioning microbiome. And so I just throw that out there. Um, probiotics are quite cheap by comparison. And the, for the tumor streams that it's not funded for, those patients would be paying a, a premium for their drug. And I think that's really an important thing for them to know. Um, just, you know, it's it's a relatively inexpensive health hack. And so I think yeah, I think yeah. it's um, a, that's the whole point of, of, of our meeting. Exactly. And, and um, yeah. I, I'm I'm just so grateful that you create this forum for people, Paul. It's it's really helpful, and I hope it's useful to your audience. Well, thank you for that. It's fantastic. People like you can come on and give the benefit of your experience, and and people can sort of cut straight to the chase. So thank you as well. So very timely information, and um, um, I'm sure that uh, for those uh, who only caught a bit of it or um, have friends and relatives they think should hear this, they can catch up on the replay. So Dr. Anna Goodwin, retired oncologist, thank you for being here for this health hack. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Paul. Bye for now. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Loving what you're hearing? Well, the establishment hates it. And right now they're conjuring up new ways to try and censor RCR. To ensure you never miss a beat of the hard-hitting news you've come to know and love, Make sure you're on the RCR mailing list. Get connected now at realitycheck.radio forward slash email.